All right, let's begin with prayer. Thank you, Lord, that we are here and we we're going to learn about numbers. Thank you for Dana. Be with him. Give him peace in his heart as he shares the word of God with us. And thank you for everything you're doing by your grace in our midst. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Numbers. Are, Jesus Christ are lifted up one. And I'll show you before I get done the significance of that statement, are lifted up one. Some people are put off by the very name, the book of Numbers. The, the common reaction is, oh, well, this is going to be boring. It's going to be so boring. It's all about numbers and genealogies and censuses and names, lists of names that I can't pronounce. Well, yes, there are numbers in the book of Numbers, but the numbers are really a relatively small part of the book. There's many significant things in this book. It's well worth our, our time and effort. The book of Numbers, the, the word numbers, comes just from the, the Latin Vulgate, where it was called numeri, which is taken from the Greek Septuagint, Erthmoi. In the Hebrew Bible, I, I like the name that the Hebrew Bible gives it. Uh, the book is called Bamidbar, which means in the wilderness. Once again, with the books of the Pentateuch, the Jewish people give them the name of a, a word or words that appear in the first verse. The first wor- verse of, of Numbers begins, Yahweh spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai. So that's why they call it in the wilderness. And this is a better name. Perhaps the name that we might give the book is How to Turn a Two-Week Trip into a 40-Year Trial. <laughs> that's, that's pretty descriptive. We'll go through the, the flight, the facts, the landmarks, the itinerary, the gospel, the history, and the... Uh, what, what does T stand for? We'll say themes. Um, Travel tips, that's what it is. Okay, the, the facts, well, it was written by Moses, of course, as all of the five books of the Pentateuch were. It would have been completed in, in 1406 B.C., just prior to the entrance into the Promised Land. Uh, when I talk about the book of Deuteronomy, uh, the, the entire narrative of Deuteronomy takes place within about a two-month period. So the book of, De- of uh, Numbers takes us almost right up to the entrance into the Promised Land. Landmarks, it describes two generations, one that left Egypt and was disqualified from entering the Promised Land, and then the one that entered the Promised Land. That's why there are two censuses, one at the beginning of the book, one towards the end of the book, of, of those two generations. The um, Itinerary, well, we might divide it up as the organization, chapters 1 through 4, disorganization, chapters 5 through 25, and then reorganization, chapters 26 through 36. So they start out organized, and of course they become disorganized because they refuse to obey God, and then there's a necessary reorganization as they prepare to move into the promised land. Uh, Gospel. There are many, many types and symbols in the book of, of Numbers, and I'll, I'll explain those to you as we go along. One of those is the, the cities of the, of the refuge, because the cities of the refuge, of refuge were 
when a person killed someone accidentally, he had to flee to the cities of refuge, and then he had to stay there until the death of the high priest. The death of the high priest brings freedom. Of course, we know that our high priest is Jesus Christ, and his death brings our freedom. The history of the book uh, uh, covers a 38-year period in the 1400s B.C. from Sinai to the Promised Land. So Israel had been at Mount Sinai for about a year, and, and this book picks up there as they prepare to leave Sinai and go on to the Promised Land. That's what they intend to do anyway, but it takes longer than expected. Um, the travel tips, well... One of them is unbelief is contagious. If you hang out with people who are always grumbling and complaining, you'll probably end up, there's a good chance anyway, that you'll end up grumbling and complaining too. Second, uh, accountability is important to God. We find that, that people are held to account in this book for their actions. Accountability is an extremely important thing. I can't recognize my need for a savior until I recognize that I am a sinner, I'm responsible for my sins. Like the Levites, we as believers are a royal priesthood chosen by God for his service. This is just a timeline of some of the events that, that take place during the book of Numbers. As I mentioned before, Israel is getting ready to leave Mount Sinai and they're intending to go on to the Promised Land. Uh, Israel camps at Kadesh Barnea. That's where they send out the spies. Intending, they're only 11 days away from the promised land at that point. So they're, they're expecting to go into the promised land and they send out spies. That doesn't turn out so well. Uh, the next thing that happens is that Korah rebels against God. And I'll talk more about that later. Uh, Moses strikes the rock. He makes a big mistake and striking the rock instead of speaking to it as God instructed him to do when he wanted to bring water forth to give to the people. Um, Edom refuses passage to Israel. They want to go through Edom, but they have to, go, they have to detour way around Edom to uh, go up into, into Moab and Edom, or Moab and, and uh, Ammon. Uh, Aaron dies in the book of Numbers. And then finally, Israel camps on the plains of Moab. They're just ready. They're not, that's their last camp before they enter the Promised Land. Here we see uh, wilderness journeys of, of Israel during the book of Numbers. Well, actually, during Exodus and Numbers. And this is, assumes the traditional route of the Exodus. I, I mentioned in when I covered the book of Exodus that uh, there are disputes about where Mount Sinai was located. So... This map assumes that it was located down at the, at the southern end of the Sinai Peninsula rather than over in, over in uh, Saudi Arabia. So they, they come out uh, of Egypt, and, and this map assumes that they cross somewhere in that marshy lakes area. And then they go down to Mount Sinai, and they come up to Kadesh Barnea, and they send out the spies, and then that doesn't turn out so well. So they end up circling around and going into the wilderness, and then they're finally ready to move up here. And that's when they uh, attempt to go through Edom, but they're denied access. But finally, they, they do go up 
and they're ready to enter the promised land. They go to their last camp at, uh, it's called Shatim or Abel Shatim, the Acacia Grove. The first thing that we see in the, in the uh, book of Numbers is the arrangement of the camp. So on the, the center of the Israelite camp is the tabernacle complex. East of the tabernacle complex is where Aaron and Moses and Aaron and the priests camp. And then there are three main clan, or three clans or, or divisions, branches of the Levite tribe. So there's the Kohathites and the Gershonites and the Merarites. Uh, Moses and Aaron, they're from the, the Kohathites. That's the branch they're from. And you'll see the significance of that when I talk to you about the rebellion of Korah. So each of these three divisions of the, of the Levites were, had responsibilities. One group was to uh, transport the, the uh, hardware, so to speak, of the tabernacle complex. Another group was to transport the, the items that were in the tabernacle. And then the third group was to transport the, the hangings and the curtains and so forth. So they all had their jobs to do. And then, as we move out from the tabernacle complex, we see that there are three tribes on each side. And remember that the tribe of Joseph was actually divided into two tribes. So over on the west side here, we have Ephraim and Manasseh, the two divisions of the tribe of Joseph that became tribes in themselves because the tribe of Levi was not given a tribal allotment because they were the priestly tribe. So the tribe of Joseph was divided into two sections, so there would be 12 tribes. And here's another diagram telling us which tribes are on the east and the south and the west and the north and the numbers of those tribes. A census was taken of all of the fighting men of Israel, 20 years old and upward. The tribe of Levi was not included in that count. This is all all of the other tribes. Um, Now, a census was, two censuses actually were taken of, of Levi, one a month old, all of the males a month old and older, and then another one of the people who were 30 years old, the males who were 30 years old and upward who could, were eligible for priestly service. It's kind of interesting if you're in the other tribes, if you're 20 years old, you're old enough to fight in the army, but as a priest, you're not old enough to serve in the priesthood until you're 30 years old. It takes more maturity to serve God than to be a fighting man, I guess. So once again, we, we see the, the, the tribes laid out there. And among each of the three tribe sections, there was one tribe that was the leader. So on the east, Judah, the tribe of Judah was the leader. On the south, the tribe of Reuben was the leader. On the west, Ephraim was the leader. And on the north, Dan was the leader. So there's one leading tribe among each of those sections. Now, 
we don't know exactly how, how the, the tribes were laid out in their camping, but some have suggested that if you look down on the camp from above, it was the form of a giant cross. And, and that's the reason that one arm, the cross, which is on the bottom, which is actually the, um, the east side, is longer. These are simply based on the numbers of people in each in each Cree uh, tribe grouping, and that one in the east was the longest. Now, in addition to the arrangement of the camp for camping, there was an arrangement for marching. When the when the when the camp of Israel was on the move, then they followed a certain pattern, a certain sequence. They were organized. So over on the right there, you see the, uh, the tribes traveling. And the, the Ark of the Covenant would, would lead the procession. It was out, out in front here. And then uh, the Gershonites and the Merites carry the tabernacle. And then uh, later on, the, the Kohathites carry the tabernacle furnishings. So the, the Ark of the Covenant and the various parts of the tabernacle are interspersed in there with, with the tribes as they move forward. And so here we see again the, the uh, groupings. And one thing I wanted to point out about this diagram is that some feel that the leading tribe was not at one end or the other, it was in the middle. So Judah is in the middle here between the two tribes and its chief over. And, and uh, uh, Reuben is the uh, chief tribe down here on, on the south. So some, some feel that the, the leading tribe was in the middle between the other two tribes. The next thing that I want to talk about in Numbers chapter 6, we learn about the Nazarite vow. And there were three restrictions of the Nazarite vow. One was to abstain from wine, strong drink, vinegar, grapes, and grape juice. So they weren't just to avoid wine, they were to avoid grapes in any form. The second one is that they would not cut their hair. And the third is that they would avoid contact with the deceased, including family members, even members of their own family. They weren't allowed to be near them if they were deceased. Now, usually, a Nazarite, a Nazarite vow was not a lifelong thing. You just took a Nazarite vow for a certain period of time. But it went, in two weeks, when we get to the uh, book of Judges, I'll talk about the most famous Nazarite of all, Samson. But his, his vow was not just a temporary Nazarite vow. His was a, a lifelong vow. The most famous words in the book of Numbers are the Aaronic blessing, Aaron's blessing. Now, it wasn't really Aaron's blessing because Aaron was just the spokesperson. He was the, the voice that uttered these words. But it was actually the Lord who did the blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. This has long been a very important 
blessing for the people of Israel. Uh, this is a, a silver scroll. These fragments are of a silver scroll, a scroll made out of silver that was found in a, a burial cave just outside of Jerusalem. And it contains those words of the Aaronic blessing. This is from about 600 B.C. All right, the next thing that we see is the sending of the spies into Canaan. So Israel has, has left Sinai now. They're on their way. They go up to Kadesh Barnea, and they send out 12 spies. Uh, one time I heard a minister, he, he read a, li a list of names and said, Who's, whose names are these? Well, nobody could think of who they were. You know who they were? The ten spies who brought back the bad report. <laughs> Nobody remembers those guys, but the two that you remember is Joshua and Caleb, the two that didn't bring back a bad report, the two who brought back a good report. So th this is a map of where the spies went from Kadesh Barnea, and they actually covered a lot of the land of Israel, the Promised Land. They went clear up into the north, Well, you know the results. Uh, the ten spies brought back a bad report, and Caleb and Joshua said, no, we can, we can take these guys, even if they are giants. But the people weren't buying it. They were grumbling and complaining against Moses. And then it was decided that they couldn't go into the Promised Land. And I should point out that when they were told that they had to wander 40 years in the wilderness, they didn't wander for 40 years in the wilderness after this point. In other words, it's kind of like a, a criminal who is arrested, but he's, he's not uh, found guilty and sentenced until two years later. He's credited for time served. In other words, he doesn't have to, if he's sentenced to 40 years, he doesn't have to spend 40 years in addition to the two years he's already spent. Well, that's the way it was with Israel. So the, the total time from the time they came out of Egypt to the time they went into the Promised Land was 40 years. It wasn't 40 years plus the two that they'd already uh, spent before, before the spies were sent into Canaan. Well, then, after they were told that they couldn't go into the land of Israel, well, then they decided, well, maybe we should go into the land of Israel. <laughs> well, that didn't work out so well. So they went into the land of Israel. Uh, they fought a battle. They were badly defeated, so they hightailed it back, back to Kadesh, Kadesh Barnea. The next thing that I want to discuss is tassels on the garments. One of the things that I really want to stress as we go through the Old Testament is don't overlook the minor things, the things that you think, well, this is no big deal. Why do we need to know about this? Because you will find that even minor things have big implications when you get to the New Testament. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel and tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations and to put a cord of blue on the tassel of each corner. This is the, the origin of the, the tallit, the prayer shawl that Jewish men wear to the synagogue. 
And I have one here. And on the four corners of this garment, there are these castles that have a cord of blue in it. Uh, they're called, the, the Hebrew word is tzitzit. So the, the, the Israelite men were to wear tzitzit on the corners of their garments. And it shall be a tassel for you to look at it and remember all the commandments of the Lord to do them, not to follow after your own heart and your own eyes, which you are inclined to whore after. So you shall remember and do all my commandments and be holy to your God. Now, this has significance when we come to the Gospels. Uh, that, that, that should be actually be um, not, not uh, numbers, but I think either, either John or Luke. Which is it? I think it's Luke. Okay. I, I believe that the, the chapter and verse sightings are correct, but it should. Yeah. Well, uh, I've got it changed on your handout, but I don't have it changed on mine. <laughs> so, yeah, okay. Yeah, okay. Um, so we read about this, and there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment and immediately her dis discharge of blood ceased. So why did this woman have this idea that if she touched the hem of, of Messiah's garment that she would be healed? And why specifically the hem of his garment? Why couldn't she touch his sleeve or his shoulder? Why, why did it have to be the hem of his garment? And we find that she was not the only one who had that expectation in first century Israel. This is from Matthew. It says, when the men of that place recognized him, meaning Jesus, they sent around to all that region and brought to him all who were sick and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. The Hebrew word translated corners in Numbers 15 literally means wings and refers to the outer edge or hem of a garment. And this is the same word, word that's used in Malachi. But for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings. So this woman... And all the people of Israel knew that if Jesus were, were the Messiah, there would be something different about his seat seat. Faithful Israelite men all over, the, all over the Palestine, all over Israel, were wearing seat seat. But they knew that the seat seat of the Messiah would be different. They would be capable of, of resulting in healing 
if you but touch them. So that's why it's important to, to study these things, even seemingly unimportant things in the Old Testament. Next, I want to talk about Korah's rebellion. Korah's rebellion is twofold. It consists of an attitude of defiance, plus the actual performance of duties not apportioned to him. So apparently, Korah was just the opposite of the Apostle Paul. He had not learned in whatsoever state he was there was to be content. Now, the other two people who assisted Korah in his rebellion were Dathan and Abiram. They were the ringleaders of the political faction of the revolt. They complained about Moses and effectual leadership and his leadership style. They thought he was too arrogant, that he took too much unto himself. Now, the thing I want to point out about Korah, I mentioned this earlier when I was talking about the arrangement of the camp. Korah was not just some random Levite. He was a first cousin of Moses. His, Korah's father and the father of Moses were brothers. So Korah and, and Moses were first cousins. Dathan and Abiram were Reubenites. The tribe of Reuben was a neighbor to the clan of Kohath. So you see that Kohath is on the south side of the tabernacle, and right next door are their neighbors, Reuben. So that's why I say that grumbling and complaining is contagious. If you hang around with those who grumble and complain, there's a good chance that you will as well. The next thing I want to talk about, and this is also very important, is the red heifer. Here's another tie-in with the gospel. Now the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron, saying, This is the statute of the law that the Lord has commanded. Tell the people of Israel to bring you a red heifer without defect, in which there is no blemish, and on which no yoke has, has ever come. And you shall give it to the Eliezer, the priest, that's the, the son of Aaron, and it shall be taken outside the camp and slaughtered there, slaughtered before him. And Eliezer the priest shall take some of its blood with his finger and sprinkle some of his blood toward the front of the tent of meeting seven times, and the heifer shall be burned in his sight. Its skin, its flesh, and its blood with his tongue shall be burned. And the priest shall take cedar wood and hyssop and scarlet yarn and throw them into the fire, burning the heifer. Then the priest shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water, and afterward he may come into the camp. But the priest shall be unclean until evening. The one who burns the heifer shall wash his clothes in water and bathe his body 
in water and shall be unclean until the evening. The ritual of the red heifer was unique among Israel's ceremonial traditions. The animal was burned outside the camp rather than being sacrificed on the altar as all of the other sacrifices were. The efficacy of this ritual lay in the transfer of impurity from the defiled person to the heifer. The, the red heifer was to produce, the ashes of the red heifer were mixed with water to produce a solution that was used for cleansing. And it was specifically for people who had come into contact or in, into the presence of a, of a corpse. People who were, who were made ritually unclean by being uh, close to a corpse, to a deceased person. Now, there, there's been renewed interest, there's been much renewed interest in the red heifer as the uh, people, the Jewish people who are intent upon rebuilding a third temple. They're looking for a red heifer, a legitimate red heifer, to uh, prepare for this eventuality of the, of the third temple. And you might think, well, what's the big deal? I mean, aren't there lots of red heifers? Well, as you can well imagine, the Jewish people are very persnickety about red heifers. <laughs> Not just any red heifer will do. I mean, there are all kinds of, of rules that they have, like the red heifer can't have more than three white hairs, and <laughs> so are disqualified from being a red heifer. Now, some ranchers in the United States are trying to produce a red heifer for the Israelites, but there's a problem there, too, because in order to transport livestock overseas, you have to put a, an ear tag in. Well, that disqualifies the red heifer because she has a blemish then. She has a hole in her ear. <laughs> so one, one of the ways that they try to get around this is by producing a red heifer and then having her get pregnant and hoping that her offspring will be, you know, shipping her to Israel and have, hoping that her offspring will be the perfect red heifer. But anyway, that's the red heifer. But the significance that it has for us is this. The New Testament reinforces the significance of the red heifer in relation to the sacrificial work of Jesus Christ. Just as the heifer was slaughtered to attain purification for the defiled, so Jesus, who bore the sins and impurities of all, man, of all humanity, was crucified outside Jerusalem in order to achieve redemption through his blood for all sinners. And I referenced uh, some passages in, in Hebrews that, that talk about the red heifer and about being outside the camp. Another thing that happens in the book of Numbers is the death of Aaron. Uh, this is Mount Hor. Well, it's one of the places that's believed to be Mount Hor. I've only seen Mount Hor from a distance. I haven't actually been on the summit of Mount Hor. It's near Petra. So I've seen it from, from Petra. Uh, maybe you can see it in this picture. On the very top of the, of the mountain peak, you see a little white dot. There's a little white dot you can see on, on the very top of the mountain peak. It's, as, as I said, I've never actually been on the summit of the mountain, but 
here's a photo of what's on top of there. This is believed to be the traditional site of the of the tomb of, Her- of Aaron. Uh, as with uh, many sites from ancient biblical history, there's, there are some disputes about if this is the real place, but uh, this has been thought to be the place uh, since the time of the uh, Jewish historian Josephus. So it's been thought for quite a while that this is the spot. Next I want to talk about the bronze serpent. This is also from Numbers. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people. And they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned. For we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Later on, uh, under King Hezekiah, um, he, Hezekiah, removed the, the high places and broke the altars and cut down the Asherah and broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the people of Israel had made offerings to it. So the people made an idol out of this bronze serpent. So it eventually had to be disposed of. But even though the physical object of the bronze serpent was disposed of. The, the idea, the concept, the symbolism of the bronze serpent carried on. Jesus said, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever, whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So Jesus himself likened the sacrifice that he was to make to this bronze serpent. And and one thing I want to point out about this, this is from John 3, verses 14 and 15. So this is just before that famous verse, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. So this is a big deal. I mentioned earlier that Israel had to take a detour. I don't know why I have so much trouble getting this on the screen. You hit your own computer. What's that? You, you, you hit your own computer sometimes. Oh, okay. Um, so they, they left and they went to, wanted to go through Edom, take the king's highway, but Edom wouldn't give them access, wouldn't give them passage. So they had to go clear down here to the Gulf of Aqaba, you know, modern-day Elat, at the, at the north end of the Red Sea, and then go up this way. And in the process, they encountered uh, a couple of kings who wanted to fight them. And so they, they defeated uh, Sihon, 
and Og. And those were the two kings that they had battles with. Um, so there, those are the, the places where they had the battles, one, one up north there at Edrei. But eventually they came to their last camp, Shatim, or Avel Shatim, the Acacia Grove, which is just opposite Jericho, across the Jordan River, east of Jericho. Now, the next thing that we want to talk about, and this is a, an interesting story. Balak, who was the king of the Moabites, he realized that he couldn't defeat Israel militarily. So he thought that he, that he could defeat them with some supernatural help. So he summoned a man called Balaam. Um, th this here is an inscription that actually mentions Balaam, son of Beor. So there actually was, we, we actually have archaeological confirmation once again that the Bible is correct, that there actually was a person known as Balaam. And, and this inscription refers to him as the seer of the gods. So th this illustrates just how desperate Balak was to get some help. Because Balak was, do Balak was down in, in Moab, near the, near the Dead Sea, and he sent for Balaam clear up north to, um, by the Euphrates River. That's how far he went to get some help. I think that's, I don't know, about 200 miles or so. Maybe more. But he desperately wanted some help. And so Balaam did come down and intended to, to help him. And he was overlooking the camp of Israel there at Shatim, at the, the Acacia Grove. And he, of course, he attempted unsuccessfully to curse Israel, but he, wasn't un, he was unable to. He actually blessed them instead. So, talking animals in the Old Testament. There are only two animals that, that speak in the Old Testament. There's the serpent in the garden, and then there's Balaam's donkey. And there are some interesting parallels between the two. In the case of, of the servant, the first word, the first spoken word is a question. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? In the case of Balaam's donkey, it was also a question. What have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? Now, of course, the difference is, the contrast is, that in the servant's case, the purpose of, of, a, of a deceptive question is to create confusion and doubt. Whereas with the donkey, the purpose of an honest question is to clarify confusion. With the servant, in, in Genesis 3, the movement is from blessing to curse. And with Balaam's donkey, Balaam's whole experience, the movement is from curse to blessing. Just the opposite. There are also some parallels between Balaam and the Magi. 
the Magi from the East who came to visit the Christ child to bring him gifts to worship him. In the case of Balaam, he was a Gentile from the East, and the Magi were also Gentiles from the East. In the case of Balaam, he received a revelation from God, even though he was a pagan seer, he received a revelation from the true God. And with the Magi also, even though they were Gentiles, not Israelites, they received a revelation from God. And in both cases, they responded to God's revelation in a rather unexpected way. Balaam seemed to know more about Israel's future than Israel did. And with the, the Magi, the wise men, even though they had received a, a partial revelation from God, they responded to that partial revelation better than those who had the more complete revelation from God, the special revelation of the scriptures. Noah, I mean, excuse me, Herod and the, and the scribes and the, and the Pharisees and so forth. They didn't respond. But the wise men who had only a partial revelation, they actually wanted to go and worship the newborn child. And then an especially interesting tie-in is that Balaam spoke of a star and the Magi followed a star. In fact, this statement from, from Balaam, a star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter shall arise out of Israel, some see that as a prophecy of the star of Bethlehem. The two censuses, I mentioned at the beginning that there were two censuses that were taken. One near the beginning of the book and one near the end of the book. Because the first generation, the generation that came out of Egypt, was disqualified. So another census was taken towards the end of the book of, the, of this new generation, this generation that would go into the promised land. Once again, these were uh, all of the males 20 years old and upward, those who were capable of going out to war. Now, when you compare these two censuses, you will find that some tribes increased in number, some decreased. And in total, there was a net loss. The, uh, there was actually a decrease when you consider all of the tribes together, uh, of 1,820, there was actually a decrease. Some of the tribes increased, some of them decreased. The biggest decline was in the tribe of Simeon. They had a loss, an incredible loss, of 37,100. So in that, in that 40 year period, there was actually a, a decrease 37,100 in the tribe of Simeon. The great decline might be due to its participation in the sin of Baal Peor. Even though Balaam wasn't able to curse Israel, he was able to figure out a way to make Israel curse themselves. They uh, committed whoredom with, with the women of Moab. And it seems quite likely that uh, 
Simeon was the, was the greatest participant in this debauchery, the tribe of Simeon. Um, in the book of, of Numbers, we are told about Phinehas, uh, who took action and, and slew a man who was doing, who was participating in this. It says the name of the man of the slain man of Israel who was killed with the Midianite woman was Zimri, the son of Salu, chief of a father's house belonging to the Simeonites. So, 24,000 people died in this incident, and uh, it seems that Simeon probably had more than its fair share of of this incident, of of this uh, loss of 24,000. The boundaries of the land. So, so before Israel enters the promised land, they are given the boundaries that they will occupy. These uh, boundaries were not realized until the time of Solomon, and that didn't last very long, but they will be realized once again in the Millennial Kingdom. Now, these are the tribes that received their inheritance, their allotment, west of the Jordan River. But there were some other tribes, uh, actually two and a half tribes, Reuben and Gad and half the tribe of Manasseh, who received their inheritance, their allotment east of the Jordan River. Moses was was concerned about this. Um, He said, okay, I'll give you your land east of the Jordan River if that's what you want, but I insist that you accompany your brethren into the promised land and help them to subdue the promised land. Then you can return to your land, to your allotments east, east of the Jordan River. the cities of refuge there were six of these cities and if a person accidentally killed someone he was to flee to the city of refuge and to one of these cities of refuge the one that was closest to him of course and he was to stay there until the high priest died then he could be free once again we see how this ties into the New Testament and the work of Jesus Christ. The book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus Christ is our high priest and his death brought about our freedom. So, now we get to the the last item that I want to talk about. And once again, it's those things that make you go, hmm... And that would be the test for adultery. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel. If any man's wife goes astray and breaks faith with him, if a man lies with her sexually and it is hidden from the eyes of her husband and she is undetected, though she has defiled herself, and there is no witness against her, since she was not taken in the act, and if the spirit of jealousy comes upon, over him, and he is jealous of his wife, who has defiled herself, or if the spirit of jealousy comes over him, and he is jealous of his wife, though she has not defiled herself, then the man shall bring his wife to the priest. And then it goes on to describe a process that seems very strange, very peculiar to modern readers. And the priest shall bring her near and set her before the Lord. And the priest shall take holy water in an earthen vessel 
and take some of the dust that is on the floor of the tabernacle and put it into the water. Then the priest shall write these curses in a book and wash them off into the water of bitterness. And he shall make the woman drink the water of bitterness that brings the curse, and the water that brings the curse shall enter into her and cause bitter pain. If, of course, she's guilty as charged. If she's not guilty, then nothing will happen. Now, one of the things that the women might say was, do you mean that a woman had to go through this process every time her overly suspicious husband suspected something? No, not really, because if a husband accused his wife and she was found not guilty, then his reputation would be pretty much ruined in the community. So a husband would think long and hard about putting his wife through this. But the other thing is that with this instruction that God gave to ancient Israel, as, to, as with so many others, there is no indication in Scripture that this was ever carried out, that this was ever implemented. Many, many of the instructions that God gave to Israel, there, there's just no indication that the people ever obeyed and ever kept those instructions. But here, here's a, an incident that I think may have a bearing on this in the New Testament. And that is the story of the woman taken in adultery. If you were here for my uh, Bible studies on textual criticism, you, you are aware of the fact that this particular incident probably was not in the original Gospel of John. But I pointed out at that time that even though it wasn't in the original Gospel of John, it, it may have actually happened. This is not a, a common uh, understanding, but I think that this test for adultery actually enters into this account. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now the law, in the law of Moses, commanded us to stone such a woman so what do you say? Now, if, if you read this whole incident, you, you will discover that, that Jesus is teaching in the temple. So this, this is taking place at the temple. What I think is happening here, as we, as we learn more about this, they say, this they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. But Jesus does a very peculiar thing. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. There's been lots of speculation about what he wrote <laughs> on the ground. But here, here's what I think is happening. The, the, the Pharisees brought this woman to Jesus, and they said, we've caught her in the act of adultery. Well... If you really caught her in the act of the, of the adultery, where is the other participant? So Jesus suspected that they really hadn't caught her in the act of adultery. They just suspected her of adultery. But rather than get engaged in a shouting match where the 
Pharisees said, yes, we did catch her in the act of adultery. And Jesus says, no, you didn't. Yes, we did. No, you didn't. When Jesus Jesus does something very shrewd, he begins writing with his finger on the ground. See, if you actually caught a woman in the act of adultery, she was to be stoned, yes. But if you merely suspected that she had committed adultery, a different law applied. And that law involved writing, and it involved the dust on the floor of the tabernacle or temple. So I think it was Jesus' way of saying, you didn't really catch her in the act of adultery. And since you didn't really catch her in the act of adultery, a different law applies. You're trying to apply the law which has stoned her, but if, she, if you just suspect her of committing adultery, a different law applies. And I think that that's why it goes on to say that they started filing out, just quietly filing out from the oldest to the youngest. Because I think the oldest knew what Jesus was getting at. So I think when he was writing with his finger on the ground, what he was writing was he started writing this passage that was the test for adultery. So that's another thing that makes you go, hmm, that hopefully it doesn't make you go, hmm, as much anymore. (laughs) So that's the book of Numbers. Next week we go to uh, Joshua. We actually move into the promised land. Um, Would anyone like to close this in prayer? Lord, we thank you for this time together. We thank you for Dana, who did a great job tonight. We just uh, thank you, Lord, for all the blessings you've given us. We look forward to your son returning. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen.